I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna pray one more time here together, and then we'll get we'll get rolling here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word tonight. God, I thank you for the book of Job. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be made able and ready by your Holy Spirit to receive these things in this great book. Father, would you watch over me as I preach? Father, please help me stay focused. Guide my my delivery, my tone, Father, my content, that you might be glorified and that people might be able to hear Christ clearly in this text. Father, I'm, I'm praying for that miracle because we won't see him without your spirit. And so, Father, I ask for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're coming into the fourth chapter of Job tonight. Satan's ambush in the beginning. Again, it failed completely. Job did not curse God, which was the goal. And so, as, as we kind of alluded to last week, if the accuser is going to get Job to crack and denounce God, curse God... He's going to have to get Job isolated. He's going to have to wear him down. It's going to take time and effort. The accusation is going to have to come a different way. It's going to have to come directly to Job's face in the midst of all his sorrow. And so Satan disappears. He disappears by name from the text and he hands the job over. I do believe that. Satan hands the job over to Job's friends. I don't think they knew that. I don't think they were willingly aligning themselves with what the devil has been doing, but I do think the text shows us that's what happened. Job's righteousness is affirmed by God from the very beginning of the book. It will be affirmed again by God at the end of the book. So even when Job does go off the rails to some degree, uh, Job's righteousness is never invalidated or disputed ultimately by God. Uh, His friends will relentlessly question the validity of his faith. God never does. So if you remember at the end of chapter 2, you would have high hopes for the character of these friends when you find that they came and sat with him for a week without saying a word and just wept with him. But uh, there's actually very little sympathy from them at all for Job. And we see that very quickly. The minute they open their mouths. Uh, Job's friend Eliphaz claims here that because only the guilty are punished by God, Job must stop acting as though he's innocent and own up to whatever he's done. Job replies that his complaint is justified because he's done nothing wrong. And so, while it is natural to believe that salvation can be earned, this is where the text is going to take us tonight, it's a torturous burden for the soul to believe that. And it's one we do not need to live under. So I'm going to start reading, or actually... Just for a moment here, over the next few weeks, just to to set it up for you a little bit, we'll look at the dialogues of Job in these large pieces. We're going to work our way through the end of chapter 7 tonight. There are three cycles to uh, the dialogues of Job because there are three men. At the end, towards the end, Elihu shows up, this young man. He'll have his own section. We'll talk more about him when we get there. Because part of his purpose in Job is to let us know that there was an audience to everything we're about to see take place over these next several chapters. People were watching all of this happen, all this discussion, and so are we. That's who we are. We're, we're, we don't want to too quickly jump on Job's friends because part of the, the function of the fact that we're seeing this means God wants us to be considering what we're seeing and dealing with it honestly just like those present would have had to. This is, it's, it's, it's like a stage play, very much like a stage play for the next 35 chapters or so. I mean, you, Basically, you're just watching people talk. 
That's a movie that would be very boring unless it's written very well. But, but just that whole idea, that is extremely rare when you think about it in Hebrew literature. That, that you're just, that people are just talking for 35 chapters. That's another reason why we can know this probably wasn't Hebrew literature at all. It came long before there were Hebrews. God is usually the one talking throughout the Old Testament. Usually. But here he's silent for a long time and four human men just hash it out. The three friends, we're going to use that term very loosely, are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz, where we start tonight, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad each make three speeches. Zophar will make only two. Job responds to each of the three speeches. That's how we're going to cover the next three weeks or so. The speeches and Job's responses. And my goal each week in that is to identify the central argument of each of these three guys and rip it apart through the responses of Job in light of how he points us to Jesus in the gospel. Each one of these men is preaching a false gospel. That's at the heart of their arguments, a false idea of where salvation comes from. It's a satanic, we are, we are reading a satanic and humanistic effort, uh, or a humanistic assault on the sufficiency of Jesus for us. That's what's happening here. Zophar, when he comes in, Zophar doesn't have a third speech, because the time the debate hits that point, or by the time we get to that point in the cycle, the debate has broken down. The three friends, their attempts to get Job to see that he's done something wrong and needs to own up to it, they fail. Beloved, we are watching a debate about wisdom. What wisdom is, how wisdom can be found, and where wisdom can be found. Which means this is ultimately, even in its ancient context, a debate about the person of Jesus Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and whether or not he is sufficient. That's really what Job is about. Eliphaz speaks first, probably because he's the oldest. The friends are probably around one whole generation older than Job. So we find that in chapter 15. Uh, Job is not then only arguing against his peers, which would be hard enough. Job is arguing against his elders which would make this all extremely difficult. It will not be easy. Eliphaz is definitely the most prominent of the three friends. His speeches are longer than the other two, and he's the most articulate. So they've heard Job, they've sat with him for seven days in silence, weeping with him. They've heard Job finally break his silence and basically cry out, God, why didn't you? Why don't you just erase the day of my birth? I wish I never would have been born. I wish I didn't exist. And now comes the response. We're going to read 4 and 5. I'll read it as quickly as I can without rushing it. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. Job was a counselor of some kind. But now it, suffering, has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Remember what he's been through. Remember what he's been through. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? That's evil. We'll come back to that. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. 
The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent core plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Call now, 5-1. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Right? Job, who's going to listen to you? Run your mouth. Right? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealously slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from sin troubles in seven no evil shall touch you in famine he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes at destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth for you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing you shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth you shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season behold this we have searched out it is true hear and know it for your good Eliphaz's central argument is found in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Here is the essence of what Eliphaz is saying. Innocent people don't perish, Job. Innocent people don't reap trouble. Those who sow trouble are the ones who reap trouble. Job, you did something. So stop acting like you're innocent. Stop wailing. Admit what you did. Come out with it. Proverbs 26, 7. Like a lame man's legs that hang limp is a proverb on the mouth of a fool. Job is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. 
Wisdom literature was designed, is designed to apply the redemption that can only come through Jesus to fools, to sinners like you and I. The problem with the friends is not so much that they have all the wrong thoughts about God. Much, most of what these men actually say about God is right. The problem is that they do not apply their theology correctly to Job's situation. Remember Jonah. Remember as we went through that book and we get to the end. And, and this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh. Because I knew you were merciful. I knew you would forgive these people if you repent. Knowing things about God does not equal knowing God. Listen, Eliphaz adds nothing to this argument. Of course, if you sow trouble, you will reap trouble. True. That's not what's happening here. That, that has nothing to do with Job's suffering. Nothing. Eliphaz starts out appearing to be so kind and careful. Is it okay if I talk? Can I say something here? Can I break this wailing that you're doing? He, he truly seems to be kind and careful. The elder statesman, it's all a show. Eliphaz, I'm going to be rough on these three friends. Eliphaz is a pitiless, dishonest old man who is extremely smugly confident in his assertions about Job. Eliphaz, better than anybody else here except Job, can roll out the thunderous phrases that make him sound so righteous and knowledgeable and biblically sound, if you will, even though they didn't have a Bible at that time. That's chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, among others. But then look at chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Look there again where Eliphaz not too quietly implies that Job is a simple and jealous fool who got his children killed because of his reckless behavior. That's what he's saying. You can almost see him then laughing, as people do in arguments when they want to make their opponent look stupid, in 5, 6, and 7, when he patronizes Job with the fact that, hey, come on, affliction doesn't pop up out of nowhere, Job. This didn't just happen. right? Trouble just doesn't spring up from the ground. You did something. I mean, come on. We all know you did something, or this wouldn't be happening to you. Then he becomes the quintessential Pharisee in 5, 8. Personally, Job, if it were me, I would seek God. That's what I would do. I mean, it's, it's, I would just put it in his hands and let him deal with it, which it's very helpful. It's very helpful. I mean, it's God. He, God does great things, marvelous things, and then he's off again, grandstanding with his theology. So by the time you get to 517, it's predictable, right? Job, you are actually being blessed right now. You just don't see it. Don't despise the Lord's discipline of you. That's what's happening here. Stop acting like this. You're embarrassing yourself. You've been found out. Just own up to it and be thankful that God has not cut you off. I mean, Job, God is, God is wounding you right now, but He's going to bind you up. He's shattering you right now, but He's going to heal you if you just will come around. He'll deliver you. And Job, you'll be so blessed. You'll just be blessed if you do that. And then look at how he ends the argument in 527. Listen, Job, just accept what we're saying. Okay? We checked. Online. We're, we're, we're sure that you're in the wrong here. We're, we're sure of it. We've thought about this. We've, we've discussed it together. You just need to see it our way. With friends like these, <laughs> it, it is... Is the one whom God reproves blessed 
Yes, absolutely. To be reproved or corrected by God for wrong means that he is treating us as his child. So we don't want to ever despise the correcting love of God in our lives. That's irrelevant here. That's not what is happening. Again, it has nothing to do with what Job is going through. Job is not being reproved by God. He didn't do anything wrong that brought about his suffering. If Job was being disciplined by God right now, based on what we've already seen in the book, it would prove God is a very poor father because God already admitted that Job is completely innocent. There's nothing he's being reproved for here. How can these friends, because we'll see it as we go through, how can these friends be so tone deaf to what is going on? And I think, for one, I think they truly believe these things. Their ability to express it in such tight poetry is amazing. I think they truly believe these things, but I also think, beloved, there's another player on the grid here. Somebody is stirring the pot. And I want, I want you, if you can, to go back to 4.12. Let me read this just one more time. 4.12 through 21. Words are so important in Job, so we have to read more than we normally do. Let me. He's saying, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. The voice doesn't say, do not fear. Right? It's not, not the standard greeting from God. What does it say? It's accusation. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's not, that is an assault on Job's belief that he is righteous. That's not coming from God. Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Somebody is bitter. How much more those who of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Do you hear all the accusing going on here? And remember, we translate accuser, Satan. That's who this is. That's how he's marked out in the book of Job. The, the Hebrew word is the accuser. When God would appear in any way, or an angel, absolutely, there was always fear. Absolutely. But it was always followed by either words or acts of comfort of some kind. Even Isaiah, when he sees in Isaiah 6, and he's undone, there's, there's a coal to heal him through his lips. There's something that in some way is meant to be comfort. Here there is accusation after accusation about how man is guilty, and then there's nothing. There's silence. The enemy always mixes enough truth with lies that the immature person will mistake his voice for God's, just like Eliphaz. Just like Eliphaz has done. Eliphaz is ready to hang his whole argument on this vision that he had. His reliance on it and the fact that he's brought his friends into it is going to pop up in Job again and again and again. 
And of course he takes it as special revelation from God. This is the mighty Eliphaz speaking. So of course he thinks it comes from God. God shows him things, you see. God tells him things. You find that at the end of chapter 5. Look, Job, just take my word for it. Okay, This is what's going on. Satan is so devious here. Look at verse 18 again. He even charges his angels with error. You know, nobody is good enough for this God. I think Satan's bitter. I think he always has been. I think he's jealous of God's approval here of this being, Job, that is lower on the pecking order than he was. He has been a murderer from the beginning, beloved. That's who he is. He wants to see Job crushed so he can throw it in God's face. He is still at work to make Job curse God. Satan hates God. He hates him. And you and I are in the middle, beloved. We're in the middle. Throughout the battle between Job and his friends, Job is going to cling to five major truths. Okay, God is sovereign. God is just. Job is righteous. God cares. And his suffering is real. All those five things are true at the same time for Job. He just couldn't figure out how to reconcile the five of them. For Job's three friends, though, it was impossible that all five of those things could be true at the same time. They couldn't deny the reality of Job's suffering. They didn't want to intentionally blaspheme and say that God wasn't sovereign or just. Right? They didn't want to accuse God of being uncaring or randomly cruel, which would also be blasphemous. So the remaining truth in their minds that has to go is that Job's claim that he is righteous. That's the one that has to go. He can't be righteous in their minds. He can't possibly be righteous and suffering like this. So what had he done? That's their whole approach. There is only one other person in the story who believes that Job is not righteous and that his faith in God is a sham. And that is the devil. It's Satan. This is Satan and his three friends against Job while he's sitting in the ashes. These men have no concept of righteousness as a gift of God's grace. For them, righteousness is only something you can perform and offer to God. It's like Cain and Abel all over again. Always has been, always will be. So as we come into chapter 4 and the friends have decided to weigh in, from here on out, the, the fight is on. Eliphaz has a picture of God in his mind and it's consistent for him, so he's not going to depart from it. Right? His argument makes sense to him, which is horribly dangerous when that's not built on the truth. The lower the being for Eliphaz, when you watch him talk, the lower the being, the, the, the further the distance from God, the greater the corruption. Right? So there's no way a human being could ever be truly righteous before God in Eliphaz's mind. That's not in the cards. Righteousness and blamelessness are relative terms for him. So if a relatively good man is suffering, it has to be some kind of punishment from the Lord. Because there's no way Eliphaz's good and kind God, you see that in 10 through 17 of chapter 5, there's no way that God could do the things Job is suffering if Job was a relatively good person. Relatively good. That's chapter 5, 17 through 26. For Job to be suffering so much means that he must have committed something horrible or his suffering doesn't make sense. That's Eliphaz's thinking. Only 
Uh, only the most wicked person would deserve such treatment from Eliphaz's God. Right? That's his understanding. Do you ever hear people say these kinds of statements? It's, it, they're terrifying. Well, my God would never do such a thing. The God I worship would never do such a thing. The God I worship would never have anything to do with that. You know, the much more subtle but just as deadly. My Bible tells me, you know, like, like you can hear the guys when they're stoned, about to stone the adulterous woman and Jesus isn't going to do it. And you know, my Bible tells me you stone an adulteress. Because it's what the law said. It's just such a pious sounding phrase. It doesn't mean it's correct. You ever heard someone say with great piety in light of something difficult in the Bible, well, if, if, if God is like that, then I wouldn't want anything to do with Him. Beloved, don't. Don't ever go there. We should cover our mouths and be still when we don't understand. And just know that He is God and we are not. But don't create Him in your image and then act like you're worshiping the one true God of the Bible. Don't do that. The more Job protests that he is innocent, the angrier Eliphaz gets. Job's protests uh, in Eliphaz's mind are Job accusing God of being unjust. That's what he hears. We'll see that as we go through. By the end of the third cycle of arguments, all the gloves have come off for the three friends, especially Eliphaz. His blood is boiling by the end of the cycles. He's just at that point inventing crimes that Job has committed. He's like, you know what? You did this and you did this and you did this. And so the mask comes off. His true character is revealed. And he's not a really good guy. No matter how gentle or reasonable Eliphaz seems or genuinely may want to be, that can only last so long when his picture of God is so incorrect. When his picture of God has nothing to do with the concept of grace. Eventually his argument has to be consistent. So if Job won't admit his crimes, Eliphaz will create crimes for him. But his accusations are lies, aren't they? Who is doing that in Job from the beginning forward? Eliphaz is in league with Satan. He is accusing him of things that he has not done to build his case that Job should admit what he did wrong and ask for forgiveness. That that Satan and the three friends are all arguing the same thing, just in different ways. Eliphaz, here's the ironic thing. Eliphaz is what Satan accuses Job of being when you listen to his theology. Eliphaz worships God precisely because he thinks God is only smiling on him because he is more righteous than other people. That's why he's blessed. So the three friends are exactly what Satan accused Job of being. Isn't it ironic in light of Eliphaz's accusations if he's so righteous that Satan is not crushing Eliphaz? I mean, why didn't God offer up Eliphaz? Because Eliphaz is not what Eliphaz says Eliphaz is. That's why. Isn't it ironic in light of Eliphaz's... uh, I'm sorry, I already said that. (laughs) Of, of, Of course Satan isn't crushing Eliphaz. Right? Satan has Eliphaz in his back pocket. Satan wants Job, because Job knows. Or Satan knows. The only possible solution Eliphaz can offer is for Job to come clean, right? That, that's the only possible thing that can happen here. He has to come clean. He has to own up to everything that he's done. He, have to, he has to give up this claim to innocence and become a monk, basically, and go seek God to make everything right again. 
So he not only needs to put away his wealth, but he also needs to put away his wickedness and this crazy belief he has that God will restore him and just go make it right or the suffering is never going to end and then he's going to die. Eliphaz believes that salvation can be earned. That's what he believes. If Job will do his part, right, God will most certainly do his. He has to in Eliphaz's theology. The only way Job can be restored is if he does as much as he can to make it right. Because, again, who was ever innocent and perished? Who was ever innocent and had evil and disaster fall on them? Only those who sow trouble reap it, Job. Right? That's the basis of his argument. You can earn restoration. You can earn salvation if you will admit to what you've done and then go on this path to try to make it right with God. Listen to Job's response. It is tragic and it is beautiful. Job responds to Eliphaz in chapter 6. He dismisses him completely. And then he cries out to God again in chapter 7. Let me read chapter 6 to you. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity lay. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that He would let loose His hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exalt in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Listen to, what he's, listen to how he talks to Eliphaz. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima, look, these are where his friends are from. The travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Job refuses to move from the belief that God is the ultimate cause of his suffering. Not in accusing God of being the source of evil, 
You've got to remember chapter 1 and 2 here. But in believing, Job believed so highly about God that nothing could have come to Job apart from God in some way. And so he, he calls his suffering the arrows of the Almighty. And God will not correct him on that. He is praying for God to take his life. He would find the pain of death more comfortable than what he is dealing with. He believes, this is important, Job is very clear that he has nothing to offer to God in verses 12 and 13. So Eliphaz is a burden to him. His words are a burden. No matter how much good theology there might be in some of the statements he makes, in Job's situation, they're not help, they're a burden because they're wrongly applied. That's verses 14 through 23. His friends are like a flash flood that just is washing him away. He says, you, you, your whole, you, you've all made an appointment with me to torment me. Listen to his cry again in 24 to 27. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. We should all have that on coffee mugs and refrigerator magnets and t-shirts. Like if, when truth is wrongly applied, it is brutal. It's brutal. What does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You think I'm trying to argue with you whether or not I'm guilty of something? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. Job would know if he had done evil and he wouldn't deny it if he had. That's what he's saying here in chapter 6. That cry, how forceful or upright words, is so painful. He's just saying, oh, yeah, just pile it on, fellas. Just pile it on. Come at me with your platitudes and your theology. You don't think I've considered all these things? What a burden your righteous-sounding words are when I'm sitting in the ashes. Beloved, truth without love is one thing, but lies without love are even worse. Eliphaz has no wisdom. Eliphaz does not have a gracious framework about God, which means, just like Jonah, he cannot even begin to claim that he knows the path to what is wise and right in this situation. Truth can never be found where Christ is not the center. And, and, and listen, I know these men didn't know who Jesus was. I know we're in a very ancient context in the Old Testament. We're long before the coming of Jesus. But go back to shortly after the garden, and remember that Abel believed something that Cain did not long before Jesus ever came. And it's this. God is not interested in our contributions. Abel knew that. He knew that. Cain did not. The epitome of foolishness is not the lack of knowledge. It is the inability to apply knowledge correctly. That is wisdom, to know what to do with what you know. And Eliphaz doesn't, and he doesn't know anyway. And so his words, even godly upright words, are like Eliphaz just grinding his finger into Job's boils. You know, you, you wonder if, if while Job is saying these things, he's still just scraping the boils with the pieces of pottery, dried tears and soot all over him because he's sitting at the dump. So Job cries out to God once more. It's chapter 7. 
Lord, has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. He's absolutely hopeful. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. What have I got to lose, he's saying. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. This... This theology right here. Job was an amazing man. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? He's talking to God. Right? Am I that big of a deal? Like, do you hear it? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. See, I, I, I think Satan is just all over him and he can't see. He just, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Why do you care, God, if I did do anything wrong? You're way up there. I'm way down here. Why do you care? Why do you visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? What have, why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. In the midst of unfathomable pain and emptiness, Job once more proves in his sorrow and despair why it is that God considers this man so righteous. Have we thought all along that Job was righteous because his behavior must have been so pure? You know why Job is righteous, beloved? You know what makes this man righteous and just what it is precisely that sets him apart then from his friends? Job did not believe for a second that anything he did would earn him salvation. He knew God was far too high above him for such a ridiculous thing. Job believes that his only hope is salvation by grace. That if there was something for which he was being punished, that, that God is not showing him, that, that when he does show him, that, that he would just remove it from his record. Look at verse 21. Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? That never enters Eliphaz's mouth at all. That that's how you are restored to God. If there's a breach. You notice that. It's never that. You see what he's saying? It's so beautiful. Eliphaz, I didn't do anything for which God is punishing me. But even if I had, what other hope could I possibly have than that God would forgive me of what I had done? You're crazy, Eliphaz. You're crazy. There's no way I can earn his favor or work my way back into his reward. That's what Job is saying. Satan is still wrong. 
Grace is the ultimate foil. Eliphaz asked Job in 4.6, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Because that's Eliphaz's. Where does Eliphaz get his confidence from? Where does Eliphaz get his hope from? The integrity of his ways. You see what he's saying? So when he asked Job, Job would say, uh, No! It most certainly is not my hope and my confidence, my good behavior. You're crazy. My confidence, my hope, is that God would forgive me for whatever it is that separates me from Him. You hear that? It's just, it's just the gospel. But you're crazy to think with these piddly little hands and ceremonies and groveling and dedication and commitment that I will somehow earn my restoration. That, that, he, so that's why, he, again, he ends in despair because he, he says, that's my only hope and I'm not feeling it, I'm not seeing it. Job points us to Jesus. Job points us to the cross. Have you ever wondered why people take such offense at Jesus? I mean, what exactly is he saying? That is so horrendous that if he doesn't shut up, we are going to crucify him. Who has ever been more benevolent? I mean, how how can you hate him? Jesus isn't just disliked and disagreed with. He is utterly hated. Because nobody gets behind the curtain of our false gospels like Jesus does. No one upends the whole idea that we not only must earn our salvation, but that we are able to, if we try hard enough, than Jesus. Nobody upends that more than Jesus. Jesus and the cross take that argument out behind the woodshed and beat it to death, and we hate Him for it. We hate Him for it. How dare you imply... First of all, that I'm so bad, I need salvation from heaven. And then how dare you imply that I'm so bad, I can't even earn it. You have to do it for me. We hate welfare. Right? We just we just loathe it. We loathe the whole idea, here, you can just have this. And yet, that's not a political statement. It's not my point here. There's a whole different argument there. That's not my point. I'm saying, let's, let's dig down. That's what Joe is doing. Let's get on as we do not like handouts. So it's really tough for us to like what salvation actually is. Because you didn't do any of the work to get it. You have zero skin in the game. Zero. And I. We want to save ourselves. Beloved, we want to save ourselves. Even believers are going to struggle with this. Again, we still want skin in the game. So yes, God's hands bruise, but they also heal. That is the gospel, isn't it? Old Eliphaz preached the gospel. It's just that the old windbag had no idea what he was talking about. He unknowingly preached the very essence of the gospel because even in the ashes of Job's pain, God is present. He is present. Even when Job can't see. Even when you and I can't see. He is present The truth that one day would be revealed clearly through Jesus at the cross is so strong, even then, that even God's enemies can't overcome it, including the accuser. He just unknowingly puts the gospel right in the mouth of Eliphaz. 
The law of grace is stronger than the accusations of the evil one, beloved. And as he roars to God, if that's how it works, as he roars to God about our guilt, the lion of the tribe of Judah roars back and deafens him. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Job would not ultimately be vindicated through his suffering. Job would ultimately be made righteous enough to stand before God by the suffering of God's Son, Jesus. That's how he got in. Job would be protected from the just and holy wrath of God. How? By the death of God's Son. Job would be protected. He wouldn't suffer the wrath. Justice was not finally poured out on Job. It wasn't even finally poured out on Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And not even on you and me, beloved, but on Jesus. On Jesus. All those questions, all our bad theology, all our complaints, all our evil, all our inability to live up to what God has done for us, Jesus covered all of it. He covered all of it. He covered all of it. He covered all of it. Job knew somewhere deep down inside that grace was his only hope. So he just threw all his eggs in that basket of faith and held on for dear life. Beloved, I want to close with this. Our fear of God, our level of respect for Him, our dedication to get to, to Him, no matter how legitimately real those things might be, is not our hope tonight. The integrity of our ways, our church attendance, our tithing, our moral purity, the laws we construct for ourselves that aren't even in Scripture, just so that we don't mess up anything in Scripture, these things are not our hope. They're not our hope. Nothing we can put on the scale will outweigh the justice and righteousness of God. We can't cry enough tears. We can't offer enough gifts. We cannot do it. So what is our hope tonight, beloved? What was our hope yesterday? What will be our hope tomorrow? What will be our hope next week, next month, next year? What will be our hope the day we stand before Him? Job's hope that God will forgive. That there will be grace. And what did Peter say this morning? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Scripture is so tightly woven. Our hope is that we are helpless to earn salvation. But God has provided. For just as the accusing blade of God's justice was about to strike you and I dead, a ram got caught in the thickets of God's wrath for us, beloved. And through its suffering, through the unjust suffering of Jesus, you and I have been forgiven. Through His willingness to lay His perfectly righteous life down, you and I are made whole. And that is our hope. That is our confidence. Jesus. Jesus now. Jesus yesterday. Jesus tomorrow. Jesus forever. I love this quote from J.J. Heller. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Praise God. Salvation cannot be earned. It is a false gospel and it will kill you just come and drink from the fountain
Do it every day. Believe and have peace tonight. It is finished. It is finished. Let me pray. Linda will come and John and we'll sing a last song together. If you need to pray about anything, I'll be here at the front. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way you reveal Jesus to us in so many different ways. May we never stop turning over this diamond and looking at all the different facets of it, Father. Would you be with us? Would you watch over your people tonight? I pray for the people in my church, Father. There is suffering in this room tonight. I don't need to create it. I don't need to puff it up. It's here. And so are you. And I pray that no matter what anybody in this room is going through tonight, that you will be with them. That you will pull them out of the ash heap. That's what you do with the needy. Watch over them, Father, and let them know, however you choose to do it, that you are with them, that you will not leave them or forsake them. Lord, may all our confidence be in you. Be with us, Father, I pray. Help us believe the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.